Welcome to my life in seven charms. This is a very special International Women's Day episode, which was recorded just before Christmas and lockdown last year. And I couldn't think of a more appropriate guest to symbolise what International Women's Day is all about. Being an Olympic gold medalist in one discipline takes talent, courage and resilience. But being an Olympic gold medalist in an event that requires brilliance in seven of them is simply awe-inspiring. The emotion from within, it was was just this feeling of satisfaction and thinking about my journey. I was transported back to that little girl that wanted to be an Olympian. So those iconic moments that I'd seen as a child were now my moments. An OBE, an ambassador for many charities, and a cheerleader for girls' participation in sport. She is also a mother of four children, the youngest of whom was born when she was 46. A truly remarkable woman and an inspiration for women the world over. I really hope you enjoy this special episode of My Life in Seven Charms with Denise Lewis, OBE. Hi, Denise. So happy to have you here. And thank you for doing this. This is brilliant. Well, I'm so excited to uh, hear all about your charms. So your first charm, when I asked you to do this, you said it's got, you weren't sure what it should be, but you said I want it to symbolise all the women in your life who have been so important, your kind of mother and your grandmother. Um, So I kind of really thought about this and thought, gosh, that's not that easy, actually. But I, I love the idea of of women helping each other along. And so I've I've drawn this as two hands holding each other and kind of almost supporting each other and pulling each other along and helping out. So I'd seen this as carved, three-dimensional. I think it should be in 18-karat yellow gold. It's always good to have a ring. Never never bad to have a ring on the finger. Um, and a few, I thought, a few diamonds around the wrist. But on the back... I thought it'd be really lovely to engrave the names of the people who have been so important in your life. So, you know, your mother and your grandmother. And so that's how that's that's how I'd seen it. But I'd really love to know more about why you've chosen this particular idea for the charm. Well, Anishka, I have to say you've created something beyond my wildest dreams, but very fitting to to illustrate the fabulous women that I do have in my life. So the reason I really went for this charm is because women have been uh, such a central part of my life. Um, My mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, but also the friends that I've acquired along the way. um, At really critical times in my life, there's always been a woman supporting me. I turn to for help, advice, um, whether that be personal or about my career. So you, you're an only child, aren't you? I'm an only child. Yeah. I was raised by my mom, single parent, and it was tough. And so I, over the years, I've seen great resilience, great tenacity from my mother, just working it out. She was a young mom, and that's never easy, especially as a, as a mom in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so watching her over the years grow and I'm sure by her own admission, make mistakes, but still have this real strong sense of pride of not quitting Yeah, is something that it really warms my heart. And I can get quite emotional thinking about her because I know there were times where she really, really struggled. So tell me more about that. So how old was she when she had you? She was just turning 18. Oh, because she was really young. Really young, yeah, really, really, young. really young. My grandmother was disappointed. Because was she living with your grandmother at the time? She was living with my grandmother. So she that might... was quite a thing, actually. Yeah, it was I would quite imagine. a thing. Yeah. We are, I'd say, God fearing family. Um, her, her mother as well. So my great grandmother, all churchgoers. And, you know, my great my grandmother came over to the UK to work, to make a better life for the, the family. And so when she sent for my mother, you know, in the 60s to come and come to the UK to live, it was probably the last thing she was hoping that, you know, within several years later that she'd find herself with a young child. And so 
my mum would have had to go through all of that disappointment, but still having the courage to keep me, to to work it out, to be a full-time mum. God, I mean... Um, well, I say full-time mum. Yes, full-time mum, but uh, having to, I had to go to nursery from a tender age. So she, cause, so she had to work so to look after to work. you. Did you live with your grandmother or did she throw her out? <laughs> <laughs> there was a little stint where my mum was like, this is not what I expect. Yeah. And so my mum was cast aside, so she lived with a, a relative for a while. And then obviously when tempers kind of calmed down, yeah. you know, she was welcomed back into the fold. But my mother... Being as proud as she is, she was, you know, no, this is my baby and I'm going to do it my way. But growing up as an only child, and I guess you were a little teen, I'm an only child, and was brought up by my mother, so I really get that. But you were a real little, little teen. Um, do you think, though, did it force you to be very independent very early on in your life? Very much so. You were a real team, a, a real unit, and... That unit has to operate on trust and and so much love, even though it was difficult. But there was a time when I was, you know, having to go to primary school. My mom would have to leave in the, early in the morning to get to work. And so it was make sure you're ready, that you lock up. Oh, you had to do all I that. I had to do all of that, Anushka. Oh you know, lock the door, keep your key all day, not lose it. Oh, my And God. so... In the evenings, um, she had to ask some parents if they could watch me for a couple of hours, just that bridging time between yeah. finishing school and my mum able to, to get back home. So can you imagine doing that with any of your children now? Not You're at Giving all. them the key. <laughs> Not I, even that. I don't think ya. anyone has a key even now and they're into their teens. You know, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I look back at that time and think, my goodness, how brave of my mum. Um but how brave of me. How brave of you. To be able to understand that this was imperative, that I got it right. And I didn't disappoint my mom. I didn't um, put myself at undue risk. And all before the age of 10. And and your dad wasn't around. I know he wasn't around really from the beginning. Did you ever think that that was odd or did you just think that was the norm? You know, you accept what you're given, don't you, as yeah. a child? And you don't really understand anything different until someone else points out, oh, or ask the question, where's your father? And so I was just happy in my own little bubble. But I do recall my mum always asking me, do you want to see him? And my answer was always no. It was always, I don't feel I'm wanting anything. Well, how much she obviously did the most one, she was obviously a wonderful mummy. She was a wonderful mum. She did what she could um, with very little means. I always had great food. Yeah. You know, always cooked, helped her in the kitchen. So we were that team. Would she cook Jamaican food or did yeah. she cook? Um, yeah, she, she cooked very West Indian traditional Jamaican yeah. food, food from home to create that home from home feeling right. because she longed to go back to Jamaica. Um but she also cooked, you know, simple food, really, yeah. you know, one of my favourite meals. And it is slightly embarrassing, but I'm going to share. It's one of those podcasts where I think we can. Um, I loved corned beef and rice. It was cooked up in mm. sort of with red peppers, onions, lots of black pepper. And because it's quite fat and very cheap meats, you know, you get the saltiness from, yeah. from the fat. Yeah. And a bit of tomato ketchup stirred up and it was just delicious. It sounds delicious. I it's, thought you were going to say something absolutely horrendous. No, <laughs> um, I, I used to love it. Um, oh, I bet. Do you cook that for your kids? I have done because I wanted them to, to see that, you know, when you don't have much money, you have to be creative. You have to yeah. use very meagre ingredients sometimes, but you just don't go hung hungry yeah. and it's possible to, to live and to survive. Um but yeah, they also like it, which is quite nice. Oh, that's fantastic. But they don't get it often. No, and, and she's still around, your mum? Yes, she is. And does she, does she live near? No, she's still in the Midlands. Oh, that must be tough for her. She's missing her grandchildren. Yes, but she has been a great grandma. Um, I do try to tell her to relax a little bit more. She still is that busy person. She can't sit down. So she comes down to visit and she'll spend weeks 
but she's in the kitchen, she's in the utility room, she's washing, she's tidying up. And I'm like, mom, be grandma, this is your time. You've had the years of being my mom where you are doing all those things. This yes. is your time to relax and enjoy. But she's just not that kind of person. I mean, she, she I very much doubt you're going to be that kind of person. Either I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. But <laughs> as you know, the apple doesn't fall too far from the it tree. It normally doesn't fall too far from the tree. I know. Well, actually, that, that brings us on quite neatly to your, to your second charm. You'd like to have a green conch shell to symbolise Jamaica. So that's, as a jeweller, that's like heaven, actually. So, so I've seen that exactly, or just a perfect miniature. Um, I've seen it actually in rose gold, because I think the middle part of the shell is always so, ple- so smooth and so kind of pleasing. So um, three-dimensional, beautifully polished rose gold inside. And then a kind of combination of green diamonds and savorites in micropave on the outside. So you've chosen that really to symbolise Jamaica. Tell me about that. (laughs) Jamaica was always this, almost like a a mythical land for me as as a child, because my mother used to talk about her beloved grandmother, my great grandmother, with such fondness. There was always just, oh, I wonder what it's like. I wonder what it's like. And so eventually when I travelled to Jamaica for the very first time at nine, so again, at nine. nine, my mom has saved up. Wow. Saved up her meager earnings to afford us to fly to Jamaica with my aunt and my cousin at the time. And um, it was just magical. Even the flight, Anishka, just that turn. I can just remember the, know the turn as you're taking that BA flight, you're landing into Montego Bay, you see the sea, you see the beaches. I remember landing at Sangster Airport in Montego Bay. And way back then, you know, there was no aircon. You <laughs> get off the flight and this you're engulfed by this heat wave. And I was just like, wow. I remember once we uh, got through customs, which was a, quite a palaver, you know, hustle, bustle, so many people. My, my great-grandmother and her three sisters... And my uncle were at the airport to meet me. me. And I looked into the faces of these people who I knew were beside themselves to meet me. They'd never met. Never met me before. Yeah, yeah. You know, my mom's nickname. No Zoom or Skype No, no. (laughs) My mom's nickname was Precious. Oh. You know, so my my great-great-grandmother called her Precious. And so... I just remember being lifted off the floor and smothered with so much adoration and love and, you know, that touching of the face, looking into my eyes. And, you know, my heart was just full. It was full. So so that trip for me was was everything. You know, real home-cooked food. You know, I could identify what my mom had been preparing at home. And now I was getting it from Mother Earth, my great-grandmother, and seeing how happy my mom was. She was just, and she was home again. And what a sacrifice it was to leave. Yeah. And so driving around Negril and some of the fantastic beaches, I was just enchanted when I saw this conch shell for the first time. This fabulous shell, which almost looks like it's from a different world. Yes, yes It's absolutely. so beautiful. Yeah. So this brings me on to your on to your third charm, and I've when when you when you talked to me about something to signify that heptathlon event, I thought oh well that's easy, but actually it wasn't that easy. <laughs> I um, thought that'd be your easiest charm. No, well anyway, I'm really pleased with it. Um, I'm really <laughs> really pleased with it because I I mean I absolutely love things that spin and my jewelry is very as you know it's very playful and I if it can work I really want it to work so I want it to be on one side an absolute replica as far as we possibly can of the gold that you won in Sydney and then on the other side I want to engrave all the seven disciplines that make up the heptathlon but the most important thing about this is that it spins super fast Um, like my running exactly (laughs) So I, that, I thought it was ideal in, in that respect. So 
I just want to talk a little bit, you know, because it's really hard to know where to start with this, but I, I guess I want you to go back a little bit and tell us, I think you were eight when you first discovered that you liked athletics. Yeah. So can you just tell me about that? And and had you all, how did you even discover that age eight? <sighs> Summer holidays. Summer holidays, watching television and the Olympics were on. Oh, right. Okay. Where were yes, they? Yes, they year? were in Moscow. Right. So 1980. Yeah. Um, I remember collecting um, sort of off a cereal packet. They were doing in the lead up to those games, sort of little Daily Thompson lookalikes. So they had these little Weetabix with, with the, the, the GB kit at the time <laughs> yeah. on and they were a bit edgy. And I remember there was a Sebco one. And I think there might have been stickers <laughs> with them. Um, Mary Peters as well, if I recall. But there was just this whole athletic experience in the lead up. And I watched those Olympics and I was like, wow, just wow. I'd been running up and down my schoolyard, you know, trying to be the fastest person in the school, the fastest person in the class, everything, beating all the boys. And now there was a place that I could really try and get to. That was that was the light bulb. So you already wanted to beat everyone. Yes. I That's exactly that. right. I was um, creating these little races at um, lunchtime where I could just say, okay, let's run up to the, from the bottom of the schoolyard, touch the wall and come back down. So who can be the fastest? So I was already organising those things. <laughs> and so can you imagine my delight seeing this massive um, competition and um, yeah, hooked. I fell in love with athletics. I asked my mother to take me to the nearest um, athletics club. Which was... Nearby? Which, nearby. Fortuitously, we, we moved from one side of Wolverhampton to the other, which ended up being really close to the stadium. Right. And okay. I think that, you know, if you are sort of either superstitious or believe in fate, that move alone allowed me to continue because I do think if I'd lived at the old house where we, we were, my mum might not have trusted that journey across town. Yeah, because you'd had to do it all on your own. Yes, yeah. too far. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm kind of fascinated because you started with running. So how do you go from running <laughs> to being a heptathlete? So I progressed uh, from, yeah, just doing a little bit because when you enter the sort of the, the new club, they take you around to a bit of throwing, a bit of jumping um, and obviously running. And I did all of those things in my formative years. And so when I was into my sort of mid-teens, my coach said to me, would you fancy doing some other events? Um, someone's pulled out of a competition. And I used to end up filling in events. For other people. For who other people who didn't turn up right. or got injured. And then he said, just go and do a heptathlon. I'm curious what you could do. I just loved it. I loved the energy. I loved the camaraderie of the event, you know, all the girls moving together, getting to know each other because, you know, you move you move as a little team. Yes. Even though you're be trying to beat each other, yes. there, there has to be communication. You're spending all day with each other. So communication, friendship or rivalry or... Friendly rivalry. Want a killer? <laughs> <laughs> never want a killer. I, I've actually never had that feeling about anybody that I've competed against really it's been that you want to win I want to win let's go for it when we've finished we can high five we can chat in our broken yeah. English or what have you yeah. and and we can get on and we'll see you at the next competition do you think you're unusual I think the event lends itself to being friendly in a way the event is challenging the event is difficult and if you get through all seven disciplines you've done well yeah amazing and uh, everyone knows there is one event that is going to be your nemesis the one that is going to unravel you potentially which one was yours oh gosh it varied <laughs> um 800 was my weakest event for for many many years right um but i had some absolute strengths as well and so it's bringing all those ingredients into the one sort of pot if you like on a day and you don't always know which one is going to go swimmingly well. You might be disappointed by your best events. 
I guess if you've got seven, it's yeah. inevitable. Yeah. But um, if you're training for one event, that's a f- we know that that is a full-on, full-time job. How does it go if you're training for seven? Do you mean does that mean you're training far more than any anybody else doing one thing? You train a lot more hours for sure. But as a heptathlete, you have to learn to get things right in a very short space of time yeah. because you have to move on. You cut away all the rubbish basically. Right. And and really center your focus on the detail of what is specifically going to make you better. I'm curious about the coach. Does one coach coach all seven disciplines? It varies. Some people do it like that. Other people introduce a secondary or even the third coach. Right. I I left my old coach who was very Midlands based and I moved to Holland and the coach that I had was Charles Van Commenay, who later became the head coach for the, the British team. And did you go to Holland because he was in Holland? Yes. Okay. So that's yes, so that's that's really I, I moved vital. I moved after after Atlanta in ninety six because um I got a bronze medal. I was on the ascendancy, but I needed more. I needed a better grasp of the winning mentality. Right. And being in my comfort zone in the Midlands with all my friends and being Almost too happy, too, I needed that edge. I yeah. needed to, to understand, to push, to, to, to push, push more, really to get two places up the podium. That's so interesting. I've got so many questions, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I, uh, the other thing I really want to know is, so how, in, in doing all of this training, what happened to A-levels, O-levels at that yes. point? Did you do all of that? I did, I did my GCSEs. I started my, my A-levels, right. but I was travelling so much yeah, school was difficult. It was a challenge for me because my schools didn't know about my life outside particularly. What we have now is um, gifted and talented programs for sport, music, whatever they're doing. And so um, I was getting back late at night after I travelled to Birmingham from Wolverhampton, taking the train, bus and train home again. Um, Age 15, 16. Yeah. Wow. Right, and your mother's still working. My mom's still working. I mean, it is completely extraordinary to think at that young age that mm. you had already the total dedication. The dedication was unquestioned. I knew that my heart wanted this. I didn't really know it was going to be a career, but I just knew that I had to give myself an opportunity. Right. I'm going to move on to your fourth charm, which is obviously it's the Olympic rings. I don't need to ask why you chose that. But, um, I mean, you know, I mean, what a lovely thing to make again, because we can use lots of lovely stones, but they're going to be absolutely uh, exactly as the Olympic rings are. Rubies, emeralds, black diamonds, yellow sapphires and blue sapphires and I just think it'll be gorgeous set in yellow gold so the back will be very very polished and very kind of soft and tactile because I I like my my jewellery to be really tactile yeah so Sydney 2000 gold I will love wearing this piece Olympics has been everything to me it has been everything and continues to be Yes. Even as my life as um, a summarizer, um, talking about it, watching it, there is something magical about an Olympic year that just ignites all the emotions of that victory in Sydney. I mean, I, I, it's so hard to imagine, but I'm kind of I'm, I'm wanting the listener to understand a little bit about the absolute well, the work that goes into it, but the anticipation because I. I really want to know the real nitty gritty of what it's like getting ready for the kind of absolute biggest pinnacle, I guess, of what you've been working towards for so long. You know, from January the 1st and you flip into that Olympic year, it's this is why we're here. This is why we get up every morning and prepare and do the training and hurt and experience the lactic and the pain and the discipline yeah. It's about this moment. Yeah. yeah, but for me, that Sydney preparation was a challenge. 
I'd been in fantastic form. I'd set a new British and Commonwealth record. And so I was ready, but then just got struck down by this injury that came out of nowhere. At, just before you went? Nine weeks before the start. Oh, God. Achilles tendon, which as anyone can imagine, is just, critical. you know, it's critical. <laughs> yes. Um, I didn't actually put my spikes on until 10 days, two weeks, 10 days before oh the competition God. started. God, so the I was, mental, oh, I mean, it must have been. Just... The mental anguish at the beginning was 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 very tough to deal with, but... My team were excellent and they said, once you commit to this rehabilitation program, please don't complain. This is, you, you've chosen to do this because I had an out. I could have said, no, this is going to be too challenging. It's too much. But I said, I've come so far in my journey that I, I can't turn back now. Be the best athlete in terms of not trying and testing it out. I will do my, my physio all the bits in between, I, I made sure I'd execute those well and all the other training that I could do around it. So upper body, yeah. core. But it was that mental rehearsal of the events yeah, that mean, was critical to my performance yes, in the end. Yes, of course. Yeah. Just that dress rehearsal, visualisation, each event, what do I need to do? And sometimes I just lie on my my bed and I'd run a hurdles race on my bed in my mind you take your place mind into that place where you're you're in that zone and so when I eventually got into the arena um you know it didn't it still felt like I'd never been away if that makes any sense no but hold on a minute we got into the arena, but so nine <laughs> back weeks up, back out, up. just back out. So yeah, so you get to Sydney as part of the team. You go to the athletes' village, feeling worried about your. I mean, yeah. uh, that's clearly a massive understatement. But no, how right. are you feeling? Well, I trained in <laughs> Brisbane, so that was my preparation camp, and I did very little. But as I said, I did what I could. And I remember Sue Barker came to interview me for the BBC and, you know, there's always already a sort of whisper that we haven't seen or heard of Denise for weeks. What is going on? Okay. Is so there a problem? There's a blanket yes, quiet. There is a blanket quiet. <laughs> yeah. We don't want, to, obviously, my competitors to be aware that there is an issue. Yeah. Um, there's whispers in the papers, you know, what's going on? Is she okay? You know, yeah. she's one of the favourites to win, but... No competitions, yeah. nothing. Um, and I didn't want to tell Sue anything either, but I just said, you know, I'm working as best as I could. Flew into Sydney. So that night before the start of the heptathlon, I was nervous. I remember t packing my bags, laying out all my kit. I had my lucky teddy bear, my little travelling companion, oh. Egbert. And that's probably my only ritual um, in terms of superstitions right. and, you know, what to do. Because it, it's very clinical and methodical. So morning of competition, you're up at five. Oh, feeling sick. Feeling numb. No, okay. All the kits laid out. What makes me feel strong? I want to come out and look powerful even before I, you know... Before, the first yeah. thing people want to see, I, they want to see me looking ready, that yeah. readiness. Um, so I've worked that out. I've got a change of clothes should the weather turn. Yeah. Triple check the shoes. Right. Those go in, bagged up. So all of this is happening for, in the morning at five. It's kind of heart <laughs> palpitation just listening to you. Yeah. Yes. Um, I didn't wear a lot of makeup really. So it was just a little bit of, Lip gloss, because I think you look good, feel good. Yeah. Maybe a bit of mascara. I think I had my hair down for that first event because I felt like I wanted to just, I don't know, sense of freedom. Mm. And I don't speak much. Right. Don't speak much. As I get close to the competition, I'm, you know, it's almost like brevity is my friend. You know, I just don't say much. Yep. And so I get the tap on the door. My physio, Kevin Lidlow, 
And he's like literally like my best friend. Right. Even now today, he's still my best friend. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, he just, you know, walks down with me to the dining hall, have breakfast, which is also, that's when you see your competitors for the first time. Okay. Because we all have the same schedule. We all want to be on the same bus to give ourselves course, enough time yeah. to warm up properly. Yeah. So is he high, smile? No. Bit of a nod maybe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, half smile. Yeah. Some people don't even get that. Um, and then, no, I can imagine, yeah, you're yeah. trying to eat. Then you're trying to take in your breakfast. You know you have to eat, but it is a chore. It's a challenge because yeah. the adrenaline is starting to kick up, kick in, sorry, yeah. and the nerves are there. And so you're almost force feeding yourself. Right. And then you're on the bus. Then you're, you know, before you know it, um, yeah. It's game time. And then you walked through the tunnel, so into the darkness to come out into the light in the arena. And you can hear the bubble of energy just erupting in the stadium because the announcer will say, first event. And then the first thing I look for is the Union Jacks. I hear them. I hear the British supporters. You hear and see the, the flags. And... Um, that just accelerates and kicks the adrenaline even higher at and that, that point. And that strength and... Yes, a sense of pride yeah. and a reason. And know, you know your why at that point. You know your why. Um, and um, Was your mum there? Always. At the majors, so, she was always there. So did you ever have eye contact with her? Could you see her? Could you know where she was? Not at the beginning. Not for that first event. Yeah. But later on, when you get the first event out of the way, you almost kind of go... First event is what? It's, it's 100 meter hurdles. Always. Always. Right. And so you, you just kind of, okay, the event has begun. Yeah. Now you almost settle into it then. Right. Um, so I never saw my mum before the first event. No. Didn't really speak to her either. Yeah. I just know she'd be in the stadium. Yeah. So somewhere during the next event, which is high jump, where there is a little bit of waiting around, I would then see her, clock her, give her a quick nod. She'd be like, Solemn, hands in lap. Yes, I'm so nervous. I bet. Oh my god, I think yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm kind of in the room, <laughs> in the stadium now. And the, okay, so now it's the second event. I, I probably should know this, but no, I don't. No, I won't. You're, it's not a test. It's not a test for you, Nishka. Um, second event is uh, the high jump. Yeah. Then we move to the shot put in the afternoon, followed by close of day, two hundred meters. So that's day one out of the way. Right. Yeah. You're exhausted because it's a long day. Remember, you start at maybe 8 o'clock, maybe 8.39, something like that. Yeah. And the last event of the first day sometimes goes off at 12 hours later. So you go back to the athletes' village and, and were your first events good? Were you... Yes, I was pleased with how I had a, a decent shot, which was great, and a, a reasonably good 200. It was fine. So the close of day on day one, I was in a good position, but needed to keep in contact with um, the leader at the time, which was my good rival, Eunice Barber from France, who had beaten me the year before. So in your head, she was the one to beat or it was it doesn't go like that? She was the one to beat. Um, we both were in really good form. Gold and silver medalist the year before in the uh, World Championships. Um I beat her at the Europeans two years before that. And so we've had this rivalry going on along with uh, Sabina Brown from Germany, who was um, just a formidable athlete, probably one of my favorite athletes, heptathletes of of all time, because she was just been, she was so consistent for so many years. Um, So day two kicks off with a long jump, one of my strengths, but it's also one of uh, Eunice Barber's strengths. She's actually... On paper, she was a better long jumper. Right. And so it was a real head-to-head. And she pulled out after the second round. Injury. Injury. Something will always happen and you just pray that it's not you. But you know immediately she's pulled out, do you? Yeah, because she she actually came over to me and she was like, something like, you go and get that gold. Oh. That's amazing. And then she left the, the arena at that point with her medical staff. So I, 
Can you imagine the, the no. emotions then? You're like, okay, don't, yes, she's gone. It doesn't change why, why you're here. It's, you still have to compete. There was a young Russian girl that was doing very well. We hadn't even heard of her, right. but she was having the best heptathlon. And um, so I had to keep my eye on her. She was then my, my next problem. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, that, so, and then you had a problem. And then I had a problem. So it was almost like, what is going on here? So my Achilles tendon on the the left leg. Yes. But it was actually the bones in the foot that I think must have just, the, the sheer taping, the weeks of taping, the compression, compression of the bones weakened weaken them. Mm. So it was so, a marginal stress fracture. I mean, I can't imagine. So you've got this going on in clearly a massive amount of pain yeah and yet you still got a jump i had one more jump to do yeah but worse than that i had the javelin to go um which those extraordinary amount of forces that are that come through the foot and through the body when you're throwing the javelin so you know head in hand um just thinking what What to do yeah what to do yeah what to do and i just lay there thinking i need this yeah. I need this. Yeah. Uh, I need to to know it's all been worth it. Yeah. God. And I need to know that I've got the sort of um resolve that 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 tenacity that I'm not not going to be undone at this moment by this. You know, yeah. the penultimate event. Yeah. So moving on a little bit. So when to the the final event is what? The 800 meters. Yep. Which is not your favourite event, no. particularly with dodgy foot. <laughs> particularly two laps around the track that is only going to result in pain, um, um, and then an uncertainty about the foot with it, with it, whether it will hold. Yeah. Um, but I needed it because the 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 Russian girl, this young Russian girl, was closing in, right. and I knew she had a fantastic eight hundred meter run in her. Right. I looked at all her stats. We'd gone through it because at that stage, you are calculating the numbers game, where you are, and where you are, yeah. and how many points. Yeah. If, you, if you throw, if you throw this, how many points will you amass? Yeah. Um, worst case scenario, if you do this and she does that, where does that leave okay. you? So yeah. all of this is going yeah. on in the penultimate, yeah. you know, couple yeah. of events. Yeah. And um, I knew exactly what I had to do for the eight hundred meters. I didn't know what she was capable of um, on the day, but I knew she was good. Yeah. And then the gun goes. And I'm feeling almost like a robot. And I know I have to hit my targets at 200 metres, at uh, 400 metres, then at 600 metres before you bring it home. Ultimately, it was me and the clock and this Russian girl. I just knew I had to keep it within my sights so I couldn't let the gap get too big. I knew I had enough in me, but I couldn't extend myself because that could end up in disaster, that I I would just get too much lactic and just end up being slower. So I had to pace Pace, myself. So so she, she went over the line first? Absolutely. She went over the line first and then... I know what happens. Everyone has their stopwatches out um, and they're literally counting the seconds. I remember being halfway down the home straight and watching the clock and watching the line and praying for it to come quicker. (laughs) But being in my head, consciously thinking seconds, seconds, seconds. Yeah. Across the line and I thought, oh gosh, it's painfully close. And it always looks like it's too far. And I had—I thought I hadn't done it. So what point, what's the moment where you realise you've done it? I heard someone shout, Denise, you've done it. I think you've done it. You've done enough. Don't know who that voice is. Right. To this day, I don't know who that was. Um, but I know that, you know, the, some of the British team from athletics were congregated by... The, the finish line, I, I know my mom was there, my coach was there, 
Mary Peters, Dame Mary Peters was there. And I look across, I wave. There's a sort of half smile, but nothing concrete for me to go off. And I said, just wait until the scoreboard shows the results. And what they do first, they give the times. Right. And they don't actually announce the overall winner for what feels like an age, but it must have been three or four minutes. Oh, an age. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. An age. So they go through the, they go through the times. Yeah. I heard the announcer saying, uh, and the winner of the, of the gold medal is Denise Lewis from Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And there's an eruption. And then there's this warm, gooey, tingly sensation that just gripped my whole body. And... I remember looking skyward and saying thank you. And then I was just beside myself with elation. No tears? No tears. No tears. The tears came weeks later, actually. But the emotion from within, it was, it's just this feeling of satisfaction and thinking about my journey I know it sounds cliche, but it is. It really is just, I'm, I was transported back to that little girl that wanted to be an Olympian. Right to, there. Right in, that, in, the in that moment, stadium. in the okay. middle of the stadium, thinking, you've done it. I couldn't stop smiling. I went to bed smiling. Oh. I woke up the next morning smiling. Um, I remember going over to my mom and kissing her she kissed me right on the mouth and we hugged she was crying my coach I had tears in his eyes and yeah I, the next thing I remember is Union Jack's been thrown over the the side so I can drape myself in it those and do you do a, yeah do you and do, do my lap of, yeah, yeah. of honor so those iconic moments oh, that I'd seen as a child were now my moments Utterly extraordinary. Thank you so much for explaining. I kind of feel like somehow <laughs> vicariously, I, you know, it does, it makes you tingle. Gosh, okay. <laughs> um, so I'm going to move on to your fifth charm. So you said to me, I want something that represents your children, but also about balance and maybe motherhood. So I really thought about this, and you can see on your sketch, I did two actually. I did a pea pod because I did a pea pod for my own children. But the other one I did, which um, I, I really enjoyed doing this, actually. So it's a shape of a woman, woman in yellow gold, three-dimensional, little waist, bit of boobs, bit of a bum, <laughs> um, and but holding two baskets in each hand. And those baskets are made of with, with diamonds, so they're, they're micropave diamond baskets and two pearls in each basket, and those are to represent your kids. So I don't know which you, which you prefer. <laughs> oh, oh, they both embody just so much of who I am and what I'm about. You know, my children are everything to me. Of course. You know, I'm an only child, as we've highlighted earlier. And so the fact that I've got four, it's, it's just weird, uh, isn't it? Un- weird. Unthinkable. I just don't know how uh, it was not a master plan as as such. But hold on a minute. You've got four, but but one's only two. One's only two. I'm crazy. So, so right? am I right in thinking that they, well, you can tell me, 18? 18. So now, Lauren's 18. Lauren's 18. Yep. Uh, Ryan is 14. Kane, 12. And little baby Troy, who's nearly two. So you had him, I hope that's all right to say, when you were 46. Yes, I did, yeah. I mean, what energy. If I thought I was going to have a child at 46, I don't think I could have managed it, actually. <laughs> well, there was much debate. Um, yeah. When I, when I found out I was pregnant again, it was, I was elated. And then I thought, literally, Wow. And then you start to take on the, the sort of how it might impact everybody else. You know, the yeah. children yeah. work. Um, Steve was happy, but also Steve is older than I am. So he was also thinking, you know, he's like, I've, I've done my time. <laughs> and so it was almost like I was a, a, 
a child again, you know, having to tell my mom that I was pregnant for the first time because I was really nervous about what she would say. What um, did she say? Initially, I think she was, she was nervous for me. Just the body, can it really do this again? Yeah. She said, you know, you were exhausted with Kane, my number three. Could you, can you physically do this and do it safely for both you and baby? Yeah. I think those were her real concerns. Yes. You know, her mothering instinct was very much, you know, not thinking about how fantastic it was to have another grandchild. It was really, are you going to be you okay? And and was it a was it a more exhausting pregnancy than the others? No. No. Not at all. Well, that's not at all. That's because you're an Olympian. <laughs> that's why. But I had so many well wishes and and funny enough, women that were said, really, they're quite envious. So these were women that are 40 plus that felt, you know, that I was being actually incredibly very brave yes. in a in an admiration, yeah. you know, admirational yeah. way that they just thought, wow, I'd love to do that, but I'm just not, not brave, brave enough, enough to take that on. You, you, I mean, we talked about the different charms, but the the lady with the um, with the baskets—that's really to represent kind of balance and balancing, as we all know. I mean, my goodness. I mean, I think you had Lauren two years after Sydney. Is that yes, right? that's right. Two years after Sydney, and and still thinking you're going to continue, yeah, to be an athlete to 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 go for the next Olympics. Actually, completely. Yeah, so I'm like, oh, no, you, yeah, it was really uh, Lauren. You know, my first child. I was still very much in the athlete mindset, so it was like, okay, let's get on with this pregnancy. Yes, bish bash bosh. I know I have to wait a little while before I get back into training, but I'm counting the days. Very much athlete mindset. Um, I still don't understand how I ended up with four. But, <laughs> but, you know, I thought, okay, I'm in the family mode. I'd like to have another baby. Yeah. Um, you know, I got married um, to, to Steve. And then, you know, we just then had another couple of boys. So I was super busy, but juggling so these scales do represent very much my life, which is, you know, that work-life balance, juggling motherhood and and working. But it's not just working and motherhood. You do so many other things as well. And whether you're ambassador for girls' sport, you obviously, we all know you as a TV presenter, you've presented so many different things. I mean... We'll talk about Strictly in a minute. <laughs> but, um, I mean, you do do more than most people. I think it's just because it's not a regular nine to five, if there's any such thing anymore. But, you know, it's not a sort of formulaic, is it, really? My, my world changes. Every week could be different. Yes. Um, juggling. But what I try to be is is also really hands-on. And that's maybe because I'm a bit of a control freak as well. Say, that, is that down to that? I but think so. Yeah. But that's hard to be hands-on, not quite. I mean, mm. I guess it might have been a bit easier over the last 10 months because we've yeah. all known we're going to be at home. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah. So with a two-year-old baby, that's helped a bit. It's, it's <laughs> actually been a golden time with Troy. I've I've loved every minute of it. So I've, I've managed to see all his milestones. So... Every new element of his little world and changing person and personality as well. I, I've been right there. Yes. Not I mean, missing a beat. Yes, that is that is it's, wonderfully. It's very special to be having having that time where all the my other children, there've been different aspects of my life that have been competing with that motherhood role. Yeah. And so it's nice. It really is nice to see, to have this other side. And, and Steve said to me recently that he's enjoyed watching me with almost new eyes. Well, I guess he Yeah, yes. because he's been home sick yes. as well. Yes. And watching me be a mom as has been you know, something yes, that no, he no. he's really fully appreciated this time around. And there, there are a couple of things I wanted to ask you. I think I read that your mother was quite strict. I guess she kind of had to be. But are you quite strict? <laughs> I think so. Do they think so? Yes. Yes, yeah. they do. I mean compared to compared to my husband, completely. 
Um, oh, I think that's just part of the course. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know, so I, I believe that children need boundaries. They do need parameters in which they can operate. Otherwise, it's just chaos. Yes. It's bedlam. Particularly with four. Yeah, with mm. four and, mm. and all strong opinions, as the young people seem to be these days. Yes. Um, they have to, they like to challenge. And, and so I have to, I have to be strict. I mean, apart from my daughter, I'm the only woman. And so I'm having to, you know, stake my claim and make sure that the boys listen um, because they'd be off doing whatever dad wants, which would be to chill out and have a good yeah. time. <laughs> and we can't have that, can we, all the time? No, God, no, definitely can't have that. And are any of them sporty? They're all sporty. But is anyone kind of going to uh, follow you? I don't know about that. I don't know whether they have that level of competitiveness. Oh, right. I, I was competitive. Would you encourage them if they did? Definitely. I think sport is a great avenue to pursue. Yeah. There's, you know, I would not be the person I am today. I would not, I don't think I'd even would have coped so well with lockdown had I not had the experience of being in sports because it teaches you how to manage disappointment, set back, to be optimistic and to still keep striving for better even when everything else around you is probably telling you not to. You've got to have a certain mindset and those nuggets and pearls that I've I've acquired over the years as a sportswoman at the highest level, I think have taught me a lot about life. In your um, autobiography, you wrote... um, your number one priority is to find inner peace and happiness, to get more balance in your life and to take time for myself. Do you think you've managed to do that? Yes, she said with a little two-year-old toddler. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I am. I'm more peaceful. I have this inner peace and it might come, it might be born out of the winning and that sense of accomplishment. Mm. But I'm also essentially happy with what I've got and you know I don't want for anything major I don't well it's just a wonderful place to be yeah so everything else is just feels like a bonus so I, I am happy so your second last charm which is number six um I was really excited about this one so it's a comb Am I right in thinking that your hair had been a very important part of your upbringing and your relationship with your mother? And So I looked it up. So is it actually called an Afro-pick? <laughs> is it called that? <laughs> it can be Afro-comb, Afro-pick. Um, but I wanted it in as one of my charms. And so I'm glad you've managed to recreate that. Well, I, I, I've just... Well, because I, I love making things perfect in miniature. And it's such a specific shape, isn't it? It's such a specific shape. But I kind of thought I'd like the top to be wood and the combs to be, they they seem to me they've got to be yellow gold. I think you have done it really well because there's no long handle. It's it's quite short because you need it to be firm to pass through the Afro hair. And the reason I wanted the Afro comb in, and it's a little bit to do with Black Lives Matter, um, but also tying in with, as you said, my, my childhood. And also the fact that for a black woman, hair is, is, is so, such a big deal and has been, whether it's someone else talking about Afro hair or what it represents, what it symbolises. But f- essentially, as a, as a woman having hair that is so flexible. I mean, one day it can be super curly. The next day, if I want to blow dry it, it could be straight. But as a child, that moment, and and most black women would tell you that the combing out of hair, if you've got curly hair, maybe even if you've got curly hair, the agony you can be in trying to comb through that, where it, it actually tangles is, you know, your your worst nightmare. So do you have to put product in it to, to stop it tangling? Yes. But Masses also, of product. Yes. Yeah. Lots of product and also 
in the washing process, it has to be delicate. And we're only learning these things as we're <laughs> moving through the ages. Yes. Because as, as a child, it was quite a vigorous, you know, painful moment than when you're going to wash your hair because it would tangle. I mean, the product wasn't as sophisticated as it is probably now. And because it was an event, you know, okay. it's you, a, don't, it, you, don't, you don't wash uh, black hair every day. You right. know, it's not good. It strips it of its natural oils. Right. Um, and so it would be a weekend, maybe a Saturday or Sunday, late morning, early afternoon. And you'd have this experience, or I did anyway, with my mom, where she'd wash my hair for me as a child. And we'd sit and put an, a, an afternoon matinee on and we'd watch TV. I'd be, she'd be sitting on a chair. I'd be on the floor in between her legs and she'd be combing my hair out. And once you get past the initial pain and discomfort, <laughs> of which there was a lot, yeah, it goes into this nice sort of relaxing, almost spa-like experience. It's kind of where It is a ritual. ritual. Yeah, but yeah. it's... You know, where we're watching TV, um, my mum would part my hair into segments so it makes it easier to handle. Right. And then she would lubricate it with oils. Yeah. And she would either plait it or she would do what is, um, what we can describe now as Bantu knots, which are traditionally from Africa. Right. Um but adopted by the Caribbean. Um, and so you make these little knots all over your head after yeah. it's been parted. Yeah. And instead of using a blow dryer yeah. to blow dry your hair, yeah. you'd let the hair dry naturally. Right. And then you'd loose them out and you just have this gorgeous sort of mane. And for me, it was just a nice time where my mom wasn't cleaning or cooking or doing something. And we would just sit there in this bonding experience time of together. doing your hair and yeah, and, and time together. Yeah. yeah. And it's passed down from generation to generation. So I used to sit there with Lauren and do her hair as well. And it would be the only time that we, we weren't arguing until she got an opinion about how she wanted her hair styled. <laughs> um, but at least we could sit there and, you know, you craft this beautiful hairstyle and, you know, I used to look at her once, she, once I'd finished doing her hair and just marvelling how pretty she looked and how beautiful she looked. I mean, since I've known you, I, I don't know how many hair styles <laughs> you've had. But actually, do you do you kind of think long and hard about changing your hairstyle? Nope. It, it's a feeling. It's, it's okay, I need time for a change. Right. So it's either a change of colour or some extensions and I'm I'm loving it. It's a great place to be right now. If you're a, a young young black girl or, yeah. or of mixed origin, yeah, um, and you have hair that you kind of used to baffle at. How am I going to manage this? And and now you can you can tame your hair and represent however you want to look in so many guises. So your final charm is a treble clef. I I see it. Obviously, it's got to have diamonds, lovely diamonds on it. It's It's got to have diamonds and kind of, I, I love yellow gold. So I see them as graduated diamonds um, down the treble clef as it gets fatter around the circle. And I think also just very, very soft at the back, but highly polished yellow gold. But tell me, has music been an incredibly important part of your life? Incredibly so. It takes me back again to my childhood. I think of my mom and I think of this, the aunt that I spoke about very early in the podcast. At, the, of, at weekends, we used to go to see my, my godmother. Um, so, <laughs> and we used to be at her house and we play music. And my mother and my aunt used to listen to Dinah Ross, The Supremes, and sounds of Jamaica. So a lot of... Um, sort of artists from the Caribbean, from the reggae yeah. industry and, and, and music um, and bring that home. Um, my mum was a big Marvin Gaye fan. And again, talking about how much music made my mum happy, because there were difficulties, as we alluded to earlier, but it was a moment where we were just free and dancing. And it was just that sense of celebration that made me feel happy. Yes. You know, we can all 
think about music of our childhood that our parents played and how you see your parents in a different light. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah when they're listening to the yeah. music that made them feel alive when they yes. were younger. Yes. And that theme has always continued through me, whether I've been competing. It's so essential to get your mind into the right place. And music can be a great tool for that. Changes your mood. If I'm I'm upset about something, I'll listen to some female empowerment music, you know. What just as a to? oh well, it could either be Shaka Khan or you know, just anything that's, you know, Whitney. Um you know, did you want to be Whitney? Did I really I tell did you you want wanted to be, to be Whitney? Whitney. <laughs> I did want to be Whitney. And when she released um, you know, Give me one moment in time, yes. that Olympic anthem for the 88 Olympics. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah, for the 88 Olympics. Every word spoke to me. You know, I was probably turning 16 and wanted so desperately to make it. Oh, you know, and so music has just been, yeah, it's but been you my started, friend. You started by, you said early, but it started by... Bit wanting to be a dancer or yeah. doing yes. did you want to be a dancer or I did, did you... want to, I, I did ballet yeah. for a long while um always dancing I always loved music my 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 mom would tell you I used to dance all the time so when you were asked to go on Strictly oh. <laughs> it was darling been... take me I'm ready <laughs> this is my calling <laughs> so talk me through Strictly I mean what's the I, I, I don't know who your partner was but is there this, there must be this very intense kind of relationship. Um, I mean, just yes. talk me through that a little yeah. bit. <laughs> Strictly was just magical. It It is. It's sequins, it's stoning, it's, it's yeah, very tactile, of course, with mm. your partner. My partner was Ian Waite. And you're constantly holding hands um, because they are guiding you through what could be and has been described by so many as a terrifying experience if yeah. you are you don't think you're that good and trying to pick up rhythm music in a very short space of time you know you have maybe a week to learn a whole new routine um so I, I remember muffling through through that on the Saturday the live show on the Saturday but I looked fabulous. You Even if looked, I say so I myself. I looked it up on YouTube. You look fabulous. The <laughs> outfits, because I was fit, um, I had this turban on, this, sequin, this, this stoned turban. It was just the most gorgeous. I looked like a scene out of like the 1940s or something. And this long um, stoned dress, a bit cut out in the centre. I looked a million dollars, so I don't. I don't think anyone noticed my footwork and how bad it was. They just were looking at this dress. Yeah, you, you, I mean, it was absolutely captivating. Yeah, I mean, absolutely amazing. But you didn't win. I didn't win. How is that possible? How? I mean, how Travesty. did that feel <laughs> for you? How did that feel? Robbed. <laughs> Robbed. I was. <laughs> no, Jill Halfpenny, who did eventually win that series, was phenomenal. She went on to, I think, perform in Chicago. Oh, did she? Yes. Okay. She had fancy okay. footwork. Is Steve a dancer? No. <laughs> no. That's Steve. Steve isn't a dancer, but what he did do for our wedding was learn to waltz. Did he? And Ian Waite, my dance partner, taught him. Taught him. So it was all happening in secret. On the quiet. Oh, that's so... On the quiet. And then once the cat was out of the bag, um, Ian used to pop over and we'd rehearse our first dance together, which was a waltz, to a wonderful artist called Beth Orton. Oh, yeah. And just a beautiful, beautiful waltz we did. And we... Bought the house down. Yeah, I bet you did. His, his friends were like, you know, he's he does. Um, he's a black belt in Brazilian jiu jitsu. <laughs> um, he has boxed, so he's you know a bit rough and ready. And no one expects this, you know, dashing prince Smooth. to be able to waltz me off the dance floor. It was. Fred a treat. Yes. It was Fred Astaire yes. and Ginge. And Ginge. Although not quite Ginge. <laughs> Ginge-ish. Ginge-ish. Um, thank you so much, uh, Denise. It's been absolute honour to talk to you and, um, and hear in so much detail, everything. Thank you. Now, as you know, I would like to make you one of these charms. Um, 
So have you decided which one you're going to choose? Oh, that's so hard. I think I think it's the scales with Is the pearls. It? I think so. But that would mean then denying my 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 gold, the gold, and you know everything that is embodied in in the heptathlon and that gold medal but you have got the gold i do i mean you have got a rather bigger version of it i do (laughs) do have a bigger version i really do it's irreplaceable i think it's the scales the scales i think i think it's the balancing of the scales the womanhood motherhood it embodies so much and it's an exquisite piece I think it'll be gorgeous. I think it'll be absolutely gorgeous. Now, my final question is if when you're not around anymore and your grandchildren find this lovely charm bracelet in a drawer somewhere, what do you want them to think of you? What do you want your legacy to be for them? Oh, that's such a good question. But I think think I'd like them to appreciate the richness that life can be if you work hard and you make the right decisions or you make decisions based on the essence of who you are friendships work and and the people that you meet you know it's every element of that charm or the charm that you will make has somebody special attached to it and they've enriched my life thank you so much for listening to my life in seven charms with me Anushka Dukas please do like review and subscribe to hear our latest episodes thank you to Fairly Media for our audio production